just a quick review of what had been covered up to this point. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross in the first class, we saw that all seven of them are anticipated in Psalm 22. It's quite interesting when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was pointing us to read that Psalm. And if you go to Psalm 22, and again, all of this is in the notes, uh, you can see that while the exact statements of these seven sayings are not in the psalm, you can actually find the elements behind the things that were stated. So the first statement was a plea for forgiveness in Luke 23, 34. You'll remember Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's important to recognize that each one of these sayings is an expression of the love of God. The love of God is, you know, when the Bible summarizes what God is, it tells us twice in 1 John, God is love. And each one of these sayings is an expression of his love. And here we have in the statement, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, God's love for lost sinners. God has a love for all lost sinners, and that was expressed by Jesus in his first saying on the cross. The second saying on the cross is in Luke 23, 43. And here we have the promise of salvation. It's very interesting that right after he asked the Father to forgive, he promises eternal life to the thief on the cross, where he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And this expresses the love of God to those who come to him in humble faith. God's love for those who come to him in humble faith. The third statement we found in John 19, verse 25 through 27, and this was the provision of love. So the first was a plea of forgiveness, the second a promise of salvation. This was a provision of love. When Jesus looked down and saw Mary and John standing at the foot of the cross, he said, woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, behold your mother. And here we see the love of God for family. The Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilling Everything taught through the scriptures, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, in the commandments, honor your father and mother, and he was providing for his mother. And we actually saw in that class what an amazing provision this was for the disciple John. Think about this. For however long Mary lived, 20 years, 30 years, we don't know. She wouldn't have been that old. She was probably 45 years old at the time of the crucifixion. She would have lived for quite some time, and John took her into his home and cared for her. He would have been able to ask her all the questions that you and I always wanted to know. What was Jesus like as a little boy? What did you notice that was different about him? How did he get along with his brothers and sisters? How did he treat other people? Uh, what was it like when you went and found him in the temple talking with the religious leaders? All of those questions we would have been able to ask, and I believe that John probably did ask those, and I think it probably played a role in why his writings in John 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation are so different. He had a perspective that no one else would have ever had. The fourth saying we find in Matthew 27, 46, and this is the perplexity of abandonment. And you'll remember Jesus screamed out here, the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we see that the love of God is costly. We see that the love of God for mankind cost everything. 
It cost the Father his Son. It cost Christ the judgment on the cross. So the Father and the Holy Spirit turned away from him while he was bearing our sin, and that's why he cried out twice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the fifth study, we saw the plea for water. In John 19, 28, Jesus said, I thirst. I believe that this goes way beyond, and I explained this, it goes way beyond just simple need for water or human thirst. I believe it expressed his thirst, number one, to be restored to fellowship with the Father. I believe that it also expressed his thirst to see men and women come to a saving knowledge of him to enter the family of God. It's very interesting to me that twice in his life, Jesus asked for a drink. Once in John chapter four with the woman at the well and on the cross. Guess what? Both times he was denied. Both times he was denied. The woman at the well, not because she was rejecting him, but in her excitement, left the water pot and goes running into town, forgot to give him a drink. Here he asked for a drink, and what did they give him? Vinegar. And you'll remember that in that passage there, in John 19, 28, it says that Jesus, knowing that all things had been fulfilled, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So the whole while he was on the cross, he was meditating on the scriptures, and he realized that there was one thing that had yet to be fulfilled, and that was the, the statement, I thirst. And of course, it also fulfilled the prophecy that said, they gave me vinegar to drink and gall for my food. So all of this was a fulfillment of scripture. And that brings us to the last two, John 19.30, where we begin to, to tonight with the proclamation of victory. And we'll see the proclamation of victory, and then we're going to turn to Luke 23.46, the presentation of trust. The proclamation of victory and the presentation of trust. The proclamation of victory in John 19.30 is probably the best known of the sayings, and of course, we would say the most important, when Jesus said, it is finished. He actually used the Greek word tetelestai, which it comes from the word teleo, teleao, which means to be fulfilled or completed. But the interesting thing about tetelestai in that particular form, which it's a perfect tense. Remember the perfect tense in the Greek means paid in the past with the result that it, the, the uh, consequences or the results of it go on forever. So the debt is paid, the consequences, the results go on forever. When you had a bill in the ancient Roman world and you paid that bill off, they would write across the bill the word tetelestai. So he paid the debt for our sin and accomplished our salvation. All of us know what it feels like to be given a difficult task and to do the task well and to have the satisfaction that it's finished. The work is done. When Jesus said this on the cross, it was the greatest work and the greatest contentment that had ever been expressed. You know, when God finishes his work, it's very interesting. What does he do? If we go back to Genesis 1, verses 31 to 2, 2, it says, Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished, and 
On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God rests when the work is finished and the work is good. The work of God is never finished until it's very good. That's true of creation. That's true of redemption. God rested on the first Sabbath, not because he was tired, but because the work was complete. Every Sabbath from that time until today is a reminder of his work and also an invitation to us, and we've seen this in Hebrews, to enter into his rest. That's very important. In Isaiah 30 and verse 15, it says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Isn't it interesting, <coughs> returning and rest? It's almost like leaving the field of labor, leaving the place of work, returning and resting. What are we doing? We're turning away from all efforts to save ourselves, returning to God as the author of our salvation, and in resting in the completed provision of Christ, that's how we find our salvation. But one thing a lot of people don't think about is the work that the Father and the Son did together. In John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, you'll remember that Jesus was being attacked by the religious leaders because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. In their mind, the Sabbath was for rest, God was resting, and Jesus violated the Sabbath. It says in that passage, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. I think it's the first mention in John that they wanted to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, and listen closely to this, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, my father and I have been working together. Why was that such a revolutionary statement? Because in the mind of the Jewish rabbis, when creation was finished and God began resting, he just kept resting. In other words, he was doing nothing. There was nothing left to be done. But Jesus reveals that as soon as that Sabbath was over, following creation, God began a new work, and he had been working all the time, and Jesus, of course, was working with him. And that work, of course, is the work of redemption. God had been working for redemption. Jesus had been working together with him because the work of redemption, you'll remember, was in the mind of God from when? Before the foundation of the world. We know that from 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Before God even created the work of redemption, the plan of salvation was already in his mind. The work of creation, the scriptures tell us, was accomplished by his hand. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12 tells us that God measured out the heavens with the span of his hand. But... The Old Testament scriptures also tell us that the work of redemption took his strong right arm. Stop and think about this. How great is the work of creation compared to the work of redemption? Something that you can do with your hand as opposed to what it takes a strong right arm to accomplish. That is how great the work of redemption is. And you can look that up in Psalm 118, 16, Isaiah 59, 16, and Isaiah 63, 5. Now here's the point where we come down to Jesus 
declaring that it's finished on the cross. Here is the triumph of the Son in his finished work. This is the victory cry of the greatest battle that was ever fought. This is the victory cry of the greatest warrior who ever lived. What Christ accomplished in those 20 hours from the time of his arrest until the time that he gave up his spirit was something no one else could have accomplished. And it involved an intensity of battle that you and I cannot even comprehend. There's no way that we will able, be able in this life to fully comprehend the stress and the strain physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally that the Lord Jesus Christ went through during that entire time. And since I just touched on his cry for water, stop and think about this. From the time of his arrest, when would he have gotten any water to drink? 20 hours. 20 hours of beating. 20 hours of abuse, 20 hours of intense emotional strain. Then came the scourging and the crown of thorns and the beating and then the cross and six hours on the cross. Three hours you'll remember in daylight and three hours in a supernatural darkness. When that darkness was on the world, I believe the darkness was so great that they couldn't even see him on the cross. It was pitch black. All they could hear were his cries. God the Father hid the Son while he bore the sins of the entire world. And then at the end, you can imagine, I thirst. But he's not just thirsting for water. He knows he's about to give up the Spirit. He's fulfilling the Scripture, and he's also expressing both his desire to be restored to fellowship with the Father and his desire that you and I come to faith in him through his finished work. Jesus talked often about finishing his work. In John 4, 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You'll remember he said that at the well after the woman had gone into the city. In John 5, 36, he said, the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So he was looking forward all the time to finishing that work. You might remember uh, in, on another occasion in the Gospel of Luke, I don't have the reference on the top of my mind at the moment, but he said, he talked about the baptism that he had to be baptized with, speaking of the cross, and he said, how I wish that it were finished. Well, now that desire has been fulfilled. The work of salvation was done. And I want you to think about something very special here. The work of your salvation and mine was finished before he died physically. Think about that. What did it take for Christ to purchase eternal life for us? It was his spiritual death being separated from the Father and the Spirit. And once that had been accomplished and he had been judged for the sins of the world, it was finished. The debt had been paid. His physical death was not something forced on him or imposed on him. It was something that he actually did himself. He laid his life down. When we talk about the work of redemption, we talk about the promise of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We talk about the amazing passage in Isaiah 53, which talks about the Lord on the cross. We talk about God's plan from eternity past to save sinners. 
We know from Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we can go on and on with a lot of other passages. He came to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. We're told this in Galatians 3, 10 and Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He came to take away our sins. 1 John 3, 5. I know I'm going too fast for you to write all this down. But again, the notes will be available on the website. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came to give eternal life to those who believe, John 3, 16. He came to fulfill God's redemptive plan completely. And all of that was accomplished at that moment that he cried out, it is finished. What an amazing achievement. And God gave four undeniable proofs that Christ's work was accomplished. You'll remember these. First, the torn veil showing that the sacrificial system was done because the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world had accomplished that redemptive plan. Then there came the earthquake and the rending of the rocks. The graves were opened. Some of the saints that had died walked into the city and witnessed to many. And then, of course, three days later, his own resurrection from the tomb. But I want us, before we leave this statement, it is finished, to consider this. His finished work is the beginning of ours. His finished work is the beginning of ours. Let me give you five things. Number one, it's the beginning of the gospel message. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4, the gospel that he preached and what is it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. That is the beginning of the gospel. Secondly, it's the beginning of a new creation because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation, or you could say new creature. Third, it's the beginning of the church. Remember back there in Matthew 16, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And what was the rock? The confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that becomes a reality at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and permanently indwells believers, and that's the beginning of the church age. Fourth, it's the beginning of his kingly reign and his high priestly ministry. When Jesus Christ entered into the throne room of God and the Father said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, he also declared, I have made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he is a king priest reigning now from the right hand of the Father. And then fifth, it's the beginning of our calling and our commission. We call it the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a lot of authority. Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I command you. I find it very interesting that the Gospel of Matthew, which primarily focuses on the Jews and on the disciples, ends not with a call to evangelize, but with a call to disciple those who believe. The Gospel of Mark, which was written more as a, a gospel for the Roman world, or we could say the Greco-Roman world, ends with the challenge to go into all the world and preach the gospel. One has a primary focus on evangelism. The other has a primary focus on discipleship. 
How do we make disciples? Well, they obviously come to Christ first, and then we baptize them, and then we teach and instruct them, and they grow in grace, and they become disciples. It's amazing how the finished work of Christ is the beginning of ours. When God worked in creation, he then rested. Christ finished his work on the cross, and now he rests at the right hand of the Father. Maybe this brings to our mind what the author of Hebrews talks about, and we've covered this in Hebrews 4, verses 3 and 11. We who have believed, remember what it says in verse 3, do enter into his rest. That's the rest in the finished work of Christ. Then he goes on to say, let us therefore labor to enter that rest. Remember, Jesus offered two kinds of rest in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a gift. That is the rest of salvation, the rest of faith in him. But then there's the rest of discipleship. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest. One rest is a free gift. One rest is a discovery that comes from work. Now, here's an interesting thing you may not have thought of. God does things in a way unique from how we have to do things. God works, finishes his work, and then rests. His plan for us is just the opposite. His plan for us is to enter into his rest and then go to work. Right? We enter the rest of salvation, and then we go to work as a growing disciple. <clears throat> we who have believed enter that rest and anything, what this tells me is this, anything we do by faith and in obedience to his word is a work that the father planned and considered finished from before the foundation of the world. Remember he said in Hebrews, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What works? All of the works that he planned which includes all of the works that he does through us, which means that we are engaged in the unfolding of the perfect plan of God and the work of salvation, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. Well, how can I work something out unless first it's worked within? For God is at work in you both to do and to accomplish his good pleasure. So working out our salvation is simply the outward expression of that which God has already done within the heart and within the soul. So in this very simple little statement, it is finished, is tremendous confidence, assurance, encouragement, comfort, and hope because it assures us that God has a plan for us that we participate in that plan, and one day our work is going to be finished. In the book of Revelation, in fact, in the 14th verse, you read of, uh, or the 14th chapter, you read of the martyrs who are before the throne, and it says that they rested from all their works on the earth. This life is full of labor. This life is full of tests, trials, temptations, difficulties, disappointments, we've all had them. They're unique to each and every one of us. No two lives are alike. 
No two people are tested or tempted exactly the same. No two people are called to accomplish the same work. But the astounding thing is that we all go through this battle that we call life. Why? So that one day we are going to enter into an eternal rest unlike anything we've ever known. I know what it's like after a long day of teaching Bible classes, one right after another after another, and usually after that's over, there's a few hours spent with people who have questions. They wonder about this and that. We go back into the scripture, so it's like three more classes or three more hours of Bible class, and then finally you get to lay your head down, and it's like you're just completely wiped out. But what a wonderful rest to look back on the day and say, that day is done. Each of us should challenge ourselves to be able to come to the end of each day and say, the work that the Father gave me to do, I have finished. We may not always do it perfectly. We may not always do it completely. We can always learn from when we fail. We can always do better tomorrow. But we can say, the day is done and it's time for us to rest. And that leads us to the last of the statements of Jesus, and we'll find this by turning to Luke 23. Luke 23 and verse 46. This, if we back up to verse 44, tells us about the three hours of darkness. It says it was about the sixth hour. Remember, they began their day at six in the morning. So the sixth hour is 12 noon, right at the brightest, hottest time of the day. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Imagine that. The sun is blocked out. No light coming through. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and I believe this was the cry, it is finished, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is a presentation of trust. By the way, he's quoting here Psalm 31.5. So once again, he begins and ends with quoting the scriptures. I want you to consider this. How many sayings are there on the cross? Seven. Right? Seven times Jesus spoke on the cross. Three of his statements are addressed to the Father. In fact, it's very interesting. The first and the last begin with the word Father. Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The middle one is addressed to the Father, but not as Father. It's addressed my God. And why is that? Because at that moment, fellowship is broken. He has become sin in our place, and he can only cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the seven times that Jesus spoke, three addressed to the Father, three of them related to the needs of men. I find this so very interesting. We could meditate on this and, and think on it. Uh, our next conference in Arkansas is on biblical meditation. You could meditate on these seven sayings of Christ the rest of your life. Jesus here dies in surrender to God's will, knowing that for men, death is the pathway into life. For those who trust in him, it's simply a door we pass through 
to enter into the presence of the Father. So three statements to the Father, three statements about the needs of men, one to the thief, one to John and Mary, and one concerning his own thirst because of the condition of his humanity, and then one a victory cry for all the universe to hear. Jesus died with Psalm 16, 10, and 11 on his mind. I believe, again, that he was meditating the entire time that he was on the cross. This passage says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, we think that we have enjoyment on this life. And we get distracted even by the enjoyments of this life. And we cling to the enjoyments of this life. But this passage tells us that the Lord Jesus went into the valley of the shadow of death knowing that real joy and fulfillment and contentment was on the other side. All of our joys, think of the greatest things you've ever experienced in your life. They're past. All of them are temporary. All of them fall behind us. And then we look ahead and then there's, we know there's more testing, more trial, more sorrow. Once we enter into the presence of our Lord, it's going to be joy and pleasures forevermore. And try to imagine this. Imagine joy and pleasure that gets better every day. It's hard to imagine. 10,000 years from now, we're going to say, I didn't believe that it could be this good. And 10,000 years after that, we're going to say, my first 10,000 years was nothing. This is so great. And it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. I mean, it's hard for our little pea brain to even be able to understand that. Jesus lived his entire life with the goal of finishing the work of redemption. You remember in the upper room when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 4? This is what he said. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And of course, he was anticipating what was going to begin happening that very night as he was arrested and ultimately put on the cross. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he makes an amazing statement regarding the love of the Father. He says, I in them, that is his disciples, and you, Father, in me, that the world may know that you have loved them, that means y'all, that you have loved them as you have loved me. Remember in Ephesians 1, 6, Paul says we are accepted in the beloved. That word accepted could be welcomed and embraced. We are welcomed and embraced in the beloved, or you could even say as the beloved. Now, I mentioned earlier that John was given the task of caring for Mary, which was a duty and a responsibility, but it was also a phenomenal privilege. And I like to think about the things that they would have discussed and the questions that John would have asked. And I do believe that it had an impact on him and affected the words of his epistles. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, and he could never get over the fact that we are called children of God. He even says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, 
what manner of love that we should be called the sons of God. Stop and think for a minute. What manner? You remember I've told you before how oftentimes little words are so significant in Scripture. You remember that I told you that there's a word that is so significant in John 3.16, but it gets overlooked all the time. The little word so. God so loved the world. That little word so is a word that refers to a qualitative idea. In other words, the quality of that love was so great that he gave his only begotten son. So if you want a biblical definition or just as a cross reference to that little word so, go to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 and tie it in with the phrase, what manner of love. God so loved the world. How big a so? What manner of love that God has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God? And I hope it's something that you and I will never, ever get over. When you get down, when you get discouraged, when life seems to have you on your back and you're screaming for agony, I hope that you will just let this run through your mind. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And then think about what Jesus said in the upper room, that the Father would love those who come to him in faith just as he loves Christ himself. To me, that's astounding, and it's something that we could consider for a long, long time. I want to give you something else to think about here. When Jesus surrendered his spirit to the Father, did you ever stop and think that before he could do that, he had to surrender himself into the hands of men? In other words, the pathway to surrendering to the Father was surrendering to the hands of unbelieving and evil men. In Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. He knew what was coming. He willfully went to the cross. In Matthew 26, 45, as he was in the garden and he was sweating great drops of blood and fighting that great spiritual battle, he came back to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said this, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He knew exactly what was going on with Judas and the religious leaders. And then in Luke 24, 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And of course, it all played out. In the last statement of Jesus on the cross, he's revealing that his physical death was voluntary and intentional. Voluntary and intentional. And you'll remember that he said to his disciples in John 10, verses 15 to 18, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. There's one thing he had no control over on the cross, and that was when the Father imputed the sins of the world to him. And he was completely helpless under the judgment of God. In the Gospel of John, we see an indication of Jesus' perfect self-mastery on the cross because that last phrase in John 19.30, when he cried, it is finished, and between that victory cry and his cry of 
committing himself into the hands of the Father. Do you remember what he did? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. That tells us something. I think we have really a wrong impression of Jesus on the cross. We see pictures of him hanging there with his head lolling down on his chest. And, and uh, you know, it's just, I think, his self-mastery on the cross, the clarity of his mind after all that he had gone through, the fact that for six hours on the cross, he is reviewing and meditating on Scripture. He's thinking about Psalm 22. He's thinking about Psalm 31.5, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's thinking about all of the passages that spoke of him because when he said it is finished, he's not just talking about the plan of salvation. He's talking about every promise and prophecy from Genesis up to that time. Every prophecy concerning his first coming was explicitly fulfilled in detail. Do you think that the prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be any different? Absolutely not. By the way, in the times we're living, does that section in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, begin to make a lot more sense? When he said to the disciples, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Anybody hearing about that? Mm -hmm. And there will be earthquakes and plagues and famines. By the way, just a weird thought for me to throw out, and I don't want to scare you. Did you know that eight of our major food supply centers has burned down in the last month? In every region in the United States, massive food supply centers have suddenly exploded and burned down. I don't believe it's accidental. I believe the plan of those who consider themselves masters of the universe is to starve us into submission. Don't get terrified about that because the Lord told us something. There will be earthquakes and pestilences and famines in many places. What was the next thing he said? See that you be not afraid. His eye is on us. He will guide us. As long as we walk by faith, he is going to keep that hedge of protection around us. And we, we are invincible until his job for us is done. I hope each of us has that in our mind. Until he says, your race is finished, nothing can touch us without his permission. And if he permits it, Sometimes it's sorrow of heart. Sometimes it's pain of body. Sometimes it's family difficulties that break your heart and break your back. And we all go through those things. He allows those things for a reason because our greatest eternal rewards are going to be received for trusting him when things are bad. All of us would like everything to go well. I, I'm heavy of heart right now because I have my last remaining horse injured himself while I was away sticking his head in the feed trough and apparently drove a straw into his eye. And I've got to take him early in the morning into the vet and see if they can save the eye. And if they can't save the eye, they're probably not going to be able to save his life. I don't know yet. That, you know, that's heavy. But you know what? It's not my grandkids. It's not my kids. It's not any of you folks. So everything's fine. And I understand something else. Satan loves to counterattack God's victories. 
And when we go and we have a conference and we're able to teach hundreds and hundreds of people and lives are changed and we already get phone calls and letters from people that are saying my life has been changed by the things that I learned, I know one thing, Satan's not going to take that laying down. So we just accept the, the blows that come afterwards and we just keep pressing on because we know that God's plan is perfect. Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, his voluntary death. And it's very interesting. Where did Jesus commit his spirit? Into thy hands. You know something interesting? That's exactly where he has committed your soul and mine. Remember what he told the disciples in John chapter 10 after he said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, my father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's where your soul and your eternal future rest tonight. So never doubt it and never fear. In Jesus' final statement, committing his soul into the hands of the father, we see a wonderful truth of David's hope, and I hope all of us cling to this because we all have friends that probably within the next, who knows, six months, year, we, we've got friends, of course, all over the country, and we know people who are actually entering into the valley of the shadow of death. People who know that they have something that they're not going to recover from. Here is a comforting thought. Even in the hour of death, Jesus is expressing the fact that we can have conscious communion with God. As David stated in Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I kind of have a feeling, and I'll have to die to know, <laughs> but I have a feeling that at the very moment that our life is ebbing away, we are probably going to have a sense of the presence of Jesus Christ like we've never had in our life. I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that doesn't depend on us and that doesn't depend on how well we've run our race. It depends on the faithfulness of God. And his faithfulness never, ever fails. So I'm going to close with this. The surrender of Jesus to his own death is the pathway for us into life. It's an example to believers and has been down through history, beginning with the first martyr. You'll remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7 as they're stoning him. And in verse 59, what does he say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What a wonderful thing to say when life begins to fade. I think it was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. You know, he only had a sixth grade education. Uh, D.L. Moody, who lived in the late 1800s, went to England for an evangelistic crusade. And all the people of England, when he first began to talk, laughed at him and scoffed him and mocked him to scorn. You know why? He was a simple guy with a sixth grade education who had been a shoe salesman and became one of the greatest evangelists ever to come out of the United States of America. But as he spoke to those people 
from just pouring out his heart and his earnestness and his dedication to God and his knowledge of Scripture, all of a sudden they began to perk up and realize, here is a man who lives close to God. As a matter of fact, another incident in his life, he was quite a well-known evangelist, but there were two ladies that came up to him, and I'd probably be a little insulted by this. They came up to him and they said, Moody, you're doing pretty good, but you're still missing something. And he thought, well, who are they to tell me? I'm an evangelist. I've got hundreds of people that come to listen to me. But he was humble, as we all should be. And he said, would you pray for me that whatever I'm lacking, I would gain? And he said, as a result of the prayers of those ladies, God began to open Scripture to him and our relationship to Christ to him in a way that he had never seen before. And he went deeper than he had ever done. You know, there's study and there's academics and all of it's necessary. But somewhere along the line, there's that mystical entrance into a deep fellowship with God that comes, yeah, we have to have the knowledge of the Word, but it also comes from a complete surrender and commitment to his plan and purpose and love for him. And when that hit D.L. Moody, his evangelistic ministry just took off like fire. So, Lord, receive my spirit. What an amazing statement. One day, if Christ doesn't come soon, each one of us is going to have an opportunity to make that statement. We need to be prepared. And the best way to be prepared to enter our eternal rest is to end each day as we lay our head on the pillow and prepare for rest to be able to say, it's finished. The work I was given to do today is done. And I hope that'll be true for each and every one of us. Let us close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the love you have for us displayed so publicly, so openly to the whole world. Every symbol of a cross displayed anywhere in the world is a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for us. And Father, without it, we would have no hope. We would have no life. We would have no future. But because He lived and because He went to the cross, because He went through that terrible time of the darkness and the judgment, paying the penalty for our sin, we know that we have a relationship with you that will never end and we can have a fellowship with you moment by moment and day by day as we also rest in him and then rise up to do the work you've given us to do. Help us strive to end each day being able to say it is finished to one day come to the end of the day of our life and be able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.